Neil, welcome back. It's awesome to be back. Hopefully, we'll go less than three hours this time. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll see. I mean, okay, so if anybody hasn't listened to our past episodes, you want to go find, I believe it's episode eight, the marathon of beer, books, and philosophy with Neil Sony, and then how to profit from chaos, lessons from anti-fragile by Nassim Nicholas Taleb. Go listen to both those episodes. They're both very good. They're the two most popular episodes on the show, actually. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, yours is, I think the one where it's just us talking is, it's like top four. Okay. It's right up there. And then the anti-fragile one is the most popular one by far. Well, uh, we'll thank Taleb for that nice bump there. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So the anti-fragile episode was so popular that we decided we wanted to try more of these book format episodes. And I think they're a lot more fun to do conversationally and give us an opportunity to take a book that has had a big impact on multiple guests on the podcast, as well as I'm sure many listeners, and then break down some of the main ideas from it so that either people who have read it can get some of those ideas in a new format or people who haven't read it can hear some of the ideas and then maybe go read it on their own. Yeah. And something I'm seeing from just from reviewing some of these books we've been talking about or listening to your podcast and seeing what people are recommending. And then just even listening to the interviewers, there's like a lot of the same themes that pop up again and again and again. And it's just really interesting seeing different people's perspectives on each of those themes. Definitely. And this is a book that has come up a number of times now, which is Letters from a Stoic by Seneca. So for those who don't know, Seneca was a Roman philosopher who lived from about 4 BCE to 65 AD. He was the tutor and mentor to Emperor Nero, who eventually basically went insane. He had his mother killed, had tons of people killed, and forced Seneca to commit suicide on suspicion of treason. But before that, Seneca was his philosophical tutor, his mentor, you know, helped sort of guide him. And he was also a famous playwright, very successful investment banker. He ended up accumulating a massive sum of money through investments over the course of his life, which gets him some flack in the Stoic canon. Yeah, but I think he also seemed to have a fairly good attitude to it, at least from rereading letters recently. It just seems like he was a little bit indifferent to the money. So yeah, but he does get some flack for that because there, there are people who say it's easy to be stoic when you're sitting on millions. So. Exactly. <laughs> and we'll get into what stoicism is for anyone unfamiliar with it in a second here. But uh, Seneca's most known for his letters, which is a philosophical work that's essentially a collection of short essays, which were written as communications with a pupil called Lucilius. And I think there's another one in there as well, right? It's with at least two people. And it's unclear if these people's actually existed, if these were actual letters, or if they were just written in a sort of dialogue fashion similar to Plato. Oh, is it really? I didn't realize that. Yeah, I know there's some debate over it. Interesting. Uh, Because, you know, like Plato kind of liked this style too. And so Seneca may have been mirroring that a bit. But yeah, so these are all written as letters to these pupils about Stoic teachings. So for anyone unfamiliar, you know, what is Stoicism? And I'm just going to read from the Wikipedia summary here because I think they do a really good job. Stoicism teaches the development of self-control and fortitude as a means of overcoming destructive emotions. The philosophy holds that becoming a clear and unbiased thinker allows one to understand the universal reason, also called logos typically. A primary aspect of Stoicism involves improving the individual's ethics and moral well-being. Uh, Virtue consists in a will that is in agreement with nature. This principle also applies to the realm of interpersonal relationships, quoting here to be free from anger, envy, and jealousy, and to accept even slaves as equals of other men because all men alike are products of nature. 
And then it continues, the Stoic ethic espouses a deterministic perspective in regard to those who lack Stoic virtue. Cleanthes once opined that a wicked man is like a dog tied to a cart and compelled to go wherever it goes. A Stoic of virtue, by contrast, would amend his will to suit the world and remain, in the words of Epictetus, sick and yet happy, in peril and yet happy, dying and yet happy, in exile and happy, in disgrace and happy thus positing a completely autonomous individual will, and at the same time, a universe that is a rigidly deterministic single whole. That's a very anti-fragile or at least robust <laughs> philosophy right there. <laughs> well, just to be fair, I mean, a lot of the ideas in anti-fragile came from Seneca and the Stoic philosophers. But this is Seneca's understanding of Stoicism and his defenses of it. He was not the first Stoic philosopher. I believe it started with Cato, the elder, and then it progressed for a few hundred years and essentially ended with Marcus Aurelius. That was the main sect of Stoic philosophers. The ones you hear about most are probably Cato, Seneca, Aurelius, Epictetus. There's a number of other ones in there, but they tend to be the main ones. So I think what we're going to try to do for this episode, it doesn't have the same straight through logic that Antifragile had. So we have to jump around a little bit more. But we picked out some of our favorite letters from the book, and we wanted to share the main ideas and talk about them. So Neil, you want to start us off here? Sure. So what we're going to start off with is uh, letter two, which is called On Discursiveness in Reading. And I think this one's very relevant because I have a I have a reading newsletter and I kind of do the opposite of this <laughs> where I read a lot of different stuff and Seneca wouldn't quite approve, but no, that's okay. We'll get to that. Um, okay. So quoting from the letter, judging from what you tell me and from what I hear, I feel that you show great promise. You do not tear from place to place and unsettle yourself with one move after another. Restlessness of that sort is symptomatic of a sick mind. Nothing to my way of thinking is a better proof of a well-ordered mind than a man's ability to stop just where he is and pass some time in his own company. So I think Nat and I (laughs) historically are not quite exemplifying this, but um, I think lately we've probably seemingly both realized the value of some of this as we're kind of setting down a little bit of roots in one place instead of bouncing around all the time. Yeah, well, I think what's interesting in how he's phrased it is that he's talking on a few different levels, right? Where on the one hand, it's discussing actual travel. And he has this line later, you know, when a person spends all his time in foreign travel, he ends by having many acquaintances, but no friends, right? Where if you're always moving around, if you're always going everywhere, that ends up meaning nowhere. You never put down roots, you never build strong relationships, you never get into that good routine. But he's also talking about kind of intellectual and thought, I guess you'd say travel, where he's saying if you're spending all of your time reading tons of different books and jumping around in interests and never really digging in, then you're going to miss getting a richer understanding of the best works. And you're probably going to end up spending a lot of time on stuff that doesn't even need to be read in right. the first place. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> our, our mutual friend, Justin, who was on for episode... Uh, if you just Google Justin Mayer's Snapchat, you'll, you'll find him. So he called me out for this, actually, because he saw that I was reading too many like pop business books. Mm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Those are the worst ones. <laughs> well, they're, it's kind of like popcorn, right? It's yeah. so easy yeah. to just, oh, like read a little 200 page book and I'm going to learn something, right? <laughs> But, you feel productive. Yeah, you feel productive. Exactly. <laughs> but you get into this problem it's candy. It's candy where brain, exactly it's candy for your yeah. brain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you jump around between all these books. You never actually learn that much. And then the time that you spent reading three of those books, if you had spent that time reading a third of a really good, big, impactful book, it would have had much more impact. Right. He says that 
You must linger among a limited number of master thinkers and digest their works if you would derive ideas which shall win firm hold in your mind. And everywhere means nowhere. Yeah, and I think this is something we've actually been talking about a lot. And I think it's come up on some of the other podcasts too, where kind of like the older the book that's still... What's that rule again? Yeah, the Lindy rule. The Lindy rule. There we go. I always forget what that thing's called. But yeah, the Lindy rule, where basically if a book is popular in 2017, it was written in, you know... 100 BC, it's probably more relevant to your life than a book that was written in 2017 because it's lasted all that time. So I think we've both actively been trying to do this. And I mean, I know you're a subscriber to the newsletter. You've probably seen older and older books continue making their way on there. And actually, ironically, it has made the newsletter more popular because these are books people haven't heard of or they haven't read themselves. Whereas, you know, if you're kind of doing like the latest book, they've already heard of it from like 20 different sources. And they're like, oh, that book again, you know, like, I mean, there's nothing wrong with newer popular books, but I'm trying to think of one like Hillbilly Elegy, right? Like I haven't read that and it has not made it on my list, but you were hearing about that book everywhere last year. I don't know if it'll be relevant in 2020 or after Donald Trump is not relevant anymore. It's kind of in the moment kind of thing. I don't know if people will be reading that in the year 4000, right? Well, I mean, they might be reading it in, you know, a few dozen years to understand this time period. Sure. But I don't see it having the relevance of like a Seneca or a Marcus Aurelius or something like that. So yeah, I I totally agree with the limited number of master thinkers idea. And I think it's almost a good heuristic too, with your own reading with each book to sort of say, hey, is this going to be useful in a few years from now? Is it still going to be around? And like you said, you know, this Lindy rule of if it's been useful or if it's been around for 20, 40 years, it'll probably be around for 20, 40 more years. And that's just really helpful for picking books. I've been trying sometimes without success to read (laughs) things that are at least 10 years old. Uh, Although fun thing is that I've started getting books from readers that are coming oh, out. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, that's my that's one exception right yeah. now is yep. yeah. <laughs> if it's like a new book coming <laughs> out. But yeah, I, I think it's just a really useful tool to think about like, has this book been around for a long time? And is it a book that you would reread? Right. That's a great point. That's the other yeah. thing that I think he's stressing here is if it's not a book that you would reread, don't even read it the first time. Because a really good book like Letters, like Antifragile, like pretty much any book that we would talk about here is one that is worth going back to oh, multiple times. And we were just talking about this before. You'll go back to a book and you'll discover a whole section of it that you kind of mentally glazed over the first time. Like it just wasn't yeah. relevant to you at that time. I mean, this or, might be kind of abstract, but it's like I always view reading as almost like a conversation between your brain and the author or maybe not with the author, but with the pages on that book. And it's like you're not the same person the second time you read the book or the third time you read the book or the fourth time. Hopefully you're not the same person. But yeah, every time you go back and read it, you've had different life experiences. You've had different things happen to you. And so what's written on the page reflects back in your brain differently. And yeah, we were just talking about it. There's like parts of Antifragile, which when we were doing the last podcast, we were rereading it. And there were parts that like neither of us noticed the first few times we looked at it or had read the book. But now it made sense. And I'm sure if we revisit it in five years, the same thing will happen again. And I noticed that with letters as well. Oh, yeah. I I mean, even this part that we're talking about right now, like rereading it and thinking of it from an actual moving around perspective instead of just a reading perspective. The last time that I read it, that hit me a lot stronger because I had been traveling for about a year. And then I read this. I was feeling a lot of those struggles where it was like, yeah, you know, this is a little exhausting. I don't really feel like I have a base anywhere. Right. And then it's, you know, it's right here. It's right here. And you're like, <laughs> wow, like, this is not a new problem. Yeah, exactly. It's not a new problem at all. Yeah. I think also this stood out to me because I'm literally coming off of uh, basically four weeks straight of being out of the country and bouncing around. And so I was feeling this pretty strongly as well. And, you know, I mean, I'm sure along the way you met a lot of people who are nomads or travel a ton. And 
I mean, you do hear this complaint after you have a couple of drinks with somebody or whatever, like this will come out and like sort of that whole like Instagram lifestyle of like yeah. seeing all the different moving cool places moving around cool all places. the time. Yeah, it looks great on the outside and it makes everybody want to go do it. And I think it is a cool thing to go experience. But it's up to you to determine, is that something where you do want to end up in a situation where you have maybe no base or, you know, it's gotten a little easier than Seneca's time to keep up with friends around the world because thanks to the internet, but it's still not not that easy because you're not sharing your day-to-day experiences with somebody. So yeah, this is something that you've obviously experienced and, you know, I've experienced as well. It's a common problem, I think, for people yeah. who try to live that lifestyle. But he's not, again, you know, he's not just talking about traveling. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's mental as well. The mental improvement. And that's a really strong current throughout stoicism is this continual self-improvement and he talks about particularly through mentorship and reading and he gives this advice uh this is probably one of the more quoted things from seneca which is uh, each day acquire something that will fortify you against poverty against death indeed against other misfortunes as well and after you have run over many thoughts select one to be thoroughly digested that day so it's every day just at least one thing it's kind of like that's your win for the day. If you got one thing that will prevent you from going poor or dying, it's a successful day. Yeah, or at least maybe not going poor, but feeling poor. Or feeling poor. Good point. Because <laughs> <laughs> the world can make you poor, but only you can feel poor. Well, and that's exactly what he says, you know, fairly soon on. It's not the man who has too little, but the man who craves more that is poor, right? And I really love this section. I'm just going to throw this line in there too. You know, do you ask what is the proper limit to wealth? It is first to have what is necessary and second to have what is enough. Like this whole section on poverty and wealth, you know, it's so interesting because you can read it and it's, it's very obviously true. Right. And then you look at it, people like to throw around these numbers like, oh, seventy five thousand dollars a year after that doesn't really make you any happier. Right. Or, right. You know, data on that. And here's the same idea. Yeah, exactly. Two thousand years ago. Yeah, exactly. Right. Where it's like if you're constantly going after more, you know, the millionaire next door problem where you're always comparing yourself to others, you're never going to be happy. And you see that so much where you see people who make tons and tons of money. And they're not happy. And they're always looking at what does the next person have? And like, how come they don't have that? How come they don't have as big of a public platform as that other person? Like, There's always going to be something you don't have. There's always going to be something you don't have. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't have to be money. It doesn't matter if you're like Bill Gates or you're the president or whoever. Like somebody has something you don't. Yeah. So even if you have to look historically, right, there's always going to be someone that you can compare yourself to. And I think we all know that that is usually what's going to cause suffering or unhappiness in those situations. But if you can reframe your thinking to, you know, not to not strive for more, but to be content with what you have, right? If you can't do that, then you'll never be happy no matter how much you get. Right. We definitely didn't talk about this on the last one. So this is good. Have you ever done like the gratefulness journal? type of thing or like a morning gratefulness thing? I've done some of that with like morning pages and five minute journal, but I've never done it very regularly. Okay. So when I first started getting into stoicism a few years ago, I started doing that. And I mean, I fall in and out of the habit now, but it takes a while to sort of become ingrained. But basically I found it to be super helpful. Basically in the morning I would write maybe like for a minute and just write down what I'm grateful for that morning. And I know when I started, I was almost like acting for myself like pretending to be grateful. Like, I'd be like, oh, I'm grateful that I talked to my mom yesterday or I'm grateful for, you know, like you just write stuff like that. And I was like, eh, I don't know if I actually feel grateful about that or like, you know, but then you start feeling it over time as you sort of, it almost becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And then I don't know, there was one time I remember writing, I'm grateful that we have coffee this morning because yeah. I was feeling a little tired, but it's like you start becoming more honest with yourself and then it 
truly does make you more satisfied with what you have. And it doesn't mean you stop striving, but it's like if nothing ever works out that you're trying to go do, you're still okay. Like I still have this bed or I still have this meal or I still have my family or I still have my friends or whatever, right? And so, yeah, it kind of you almost end up in a situation where it's all upside. No matter what happens, you're gonna be okay. Do you still do it? Uh, yeah, here and there. It's like I do it almost like... um when I feel like I need to a little bit, like when I start feeling a little overwhelmed or I just need to like remind myself of you don't need to constantly be like worrying about what you're going for. You know, it doesn't have to work out and you still have all these great things in your life. So yeah, I mean, it's, uh, forget where I'd read it. I didn't come up with the idea, but yeah. someone else came up with the idea. Someone way smarter than me. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, it's cool that you mentioned how it took a while to get over the, I guess, kind of feelings of fraud in doing oh. it. Because that, that was why I stopped. Okay. Yeah. That I did it for um, probably less than a week. Okay. And I was oh, yeah. Like, is, it doesn't yeah. go away in a week. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, all right, this feels silly. Like, yeah. I don't, yeah. Okay. So you got to keep doing it. Just like most things, like Justin has that one blog post, like fight through the suck. Yeah. That applies to so many things. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like uh, Seth Godin's The Dip, right? Mm. It's like there's always going to be that point where it's just like, all right, this sucks. It's yeah. not going anywhere. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, meditation's like that too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, exercise, like weightlifting. Oh, yeah. You're like, you just hit this point where you're like, this is like, I'm not getting any better. I seem to be getting worse right. at this. <laughs> like, right. why am I doing all this? It's usually pretty close to when you're going to break through whatever exactly, the plateau yeah. is. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Which is encouraging. So. I've legitimately actually thought that when like that'll be the second thought that'll come to my brain when part of my brain's telling me you should just stop because you suck at this and then the other part of my brain's like but that's usually right when it turns around exactly it depends who wins on that particular day although to be fair we probably only hear the stories from people who you know (laughs) don't quit there and then it works out it's a little bit of narrative fallacy but life is a narrative fallacy man (laughs) (laughs) all right should we move on to the next letter here Yeah. yeah all right so this is letter 18 which is on festivals and fasting and it opens with seneca sort of describing the current climate environment uh he says it is the month of december and yet the whole city is in a sweat festivity at state expense is given unrestricted license everywhere there echoes the noise of preparations on a massive scale it all suggests that the saturnalia holidays are different from the ordinary working day when the difference is really non-existent so much so in fact that the man who said that december used to be a month but is now a year was in my opinion not far wide off the mark so he's discussing basically they're in the saturnalia this was the december towards the end of december festival that would eventually be replaced by christmas We don't have to get too much into that, but it was just a big festivity point. Do you know what the religion was? Just like the general pagan Roman? I think so. Because Saturn, Saturn, Saturn's uh, one of their gods, yeah, so it would be right. Saturnalia. But yeah, so essentially he's discussing here like, hey, it's the festival season. And then this whole letter is about how to behave during festivals and fasting yep. or festivals, feasting. And, you know, we're going to talk about and a lot of it is about bad influences, I think that's a big thing he's talking about here. I also took from it the, um, at least in that quote, where he's saying holidays are different from the ordinary working day, when the difference is really non-existent. That's so true. (laughs) Like you can use, I mean, it seems like now, especially maybe in in Seneca's time as well, there's like a holiday every single day. There's like National Beer Day, National Donut Day, National Pizza Day. And like, I don't know if you... Every day's a holiday. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's like you're not going to ever be disciplined at all. And like, I think that's sort of what he's going at where he's saying it used to be a month. Now it's a year. You can kind of use anything as an excuse to not be disciplined. And 
not kind of stick to what your plan is oh yeah well that that's a really big one it's like (laughs) people who think about doing a water fast for a few days right they won't do it because they'll be like oh well this weekend i'm doing that and this weekend i'm doing that and oh during the week here you know i can't do it because i have to go to this thing i used to even be like that for my 24 hour fast because i haven't done like the three-day ones or anything as intense as you have but i try to do like the 24 hour at least every couple weeks Mm -hmm. ideally every week but sometimes it doesn't happen but I used to use like the excuses of like, well, I'm going to be deadlifting that day, so I probably shouldn't be fasting. But then it's like, if you use that, you're never going to fast yeah, exactly. because there's always something. It's like I have that call that day. I probably shouldn't be fasted for that. And at a certain point, you just have to be like, you know, fuck it. And like, yeah, go. <laughs> it's just going in the calendar. Yeah. You just got to do it. And then you find that your deadlift is sometimes improved by doing it fasted. And like, yeah, if you do it at the right part of the fast, especially 24 hour fast, it's not even that long. No, like, <laughs> you have a problem with that. Like, you're complaining about 24 hour. Exactly. Fast. <laughs> Like who's that one dude who's been on tim ferris who like he does like deadlifting after like oh dominic oh, d'agostino yeah, yeah. Oh, dude he was just on joe rogan too oh okay. really good yeah but yeah he he's deadlifted on like a seven day fast yeah. of like 500 pounds yeah, something exactly. absurd yeah i think when i heard that i was like all right i could deadlift i guess like, <laughs> i'm doing my 24 hour fast well the the craziest <laughs> thing that he and joe rogan were talking about and i'd read this study before too but there was a guy i think in norway who was some 300 pounds overweight and he fasted for most of a year like 260 days and lost pretty much all of the excess weight all he did was take uh, an electrolyte and drink water and stuff yeah and drink water because your magnesium goes super low and you fast there's a couple things like that okay yeah he did it for most of a year wow. <laughs> and just ran off of his own fat wow. and lost the weight that's which crazy the, which is i guess the purpose of fat yeah well i mean that's why it's there yeah that's why your body puts on fat in the first place so well done by him yeah yeah i mean but people are so overfed that that process never kicks in i've talked to people about miss like when they'll miss a meal it's okay it's not a big deal and like people will freak out about missing one meal and i don't know how much of it is like get them getting hangry or it's like just habit having those reactions to not eating like that means that something is wrong in your body yeah (laughs) like if you can't can't kind of casually go a couple of days without eating without you know losing your mind right. like yeah. you probably work on that <laughs> and i wonder how much of it it's got to be like partially psychological too because do you notice that during your fasts like i noticed my stomach will just start growling at the right time to eat the time that i'm used to eating but then as soon as that time has passed i'm like not even hungry anymore i'm like ah, okay i could go like another six hours that it's not a problem but then dinner time rolls around and then you're like oh i'm hungry again but then you get past that and then you're like it's not a big deal anymore I think habit's definitely part of it. I know blood glucose is a part of it too. And that might be related to habit because your blood sugar will drop in anticipation of a meal. And then if it drops and that doesn't get filled, then you can get like sluggish and cranky and all of that. It's your body telling you that, hey, it's time to eat. It's time like, to eat. Yeah. Exactly. Right. <laughs> Whatever you're doing is not as important. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Evolution, man. Yeah. But Seneca actually gives this advice where he says in here, uh, this is another fairly famous line. Set aside a certain number of days during which you shall be content with the scantiest and cheapest fare, with coarse and rough dress, saying to yourself the while, is this the condition that I feared? So he's giving the advice here like, hey, if you're always indulging, if you're always partying and feasting, then you're going to really fear having periods without that if you're always giving into those impulses. And so you want to set aside a couple days a month where you don't spend a lot of money, where you eat rice and beans or you fast, where you just pretend like you've lost everything that you're afraid of losing. And what he's saying here, and what I think most people will find in trying to do it, is that it's not that bad. 
it's really not. <laughs> it's actually kind of fun. Yeah, it is kind of fun. It's like an exercise. And right? you can do it in like strategic times too. So like I tend to fast on flying days or travel days because usually airplane food is not good anyway. So you're like not having to eat that. So that's already a plus. You get a fast in and then you're like, I don't know, you just it, you kind of kill two birds with one stone. You don't have yeah. to put shitty food in your body. And <laughs> you get a fast done. Yeah. yeah. And it's uh, no, but I think this point is so, so valid that it's like this big monster in your head until you kind of do it. And that could apply to eating cheaply. So not spending a lot of money on food. Like I'm sure if someone's used to eating all organic vegetables, all organic fruits and meats and stuff, and then one day they have to go off like canned tuna in their head, that might be a major problem. But one day of canned tuna is not going to kill you. Yes. Yeah, hopefully. hopefully. Not a doctor. But yeah. <laughs> hopefully. But yeah, I mean, he's saying you can apply that to everything, right? Yeah. You know, you basically want to build fast into all that you do right take times without the internet without yep. all the like luxuries and comforts yep. try to live as if you had actually like lost everything and think about you know would you get back out of that because what he's saying is that a big part of this is people will not do things out of fear of loss right. or they'll act out of fear of reaching these states and then when you try being in that state you'll realize like oh okay you know this would actually not be so terrible and i could get back out of it. And that gives you the confidence to go out and do whatever it is you were afraid of doing before out of whatever perceived risk there was. Exactly. Yeah. I feel like this is a really good thing for people who are interested in the entrepreneurial self-employment route to do, because especially if you're coming from a high paying job, you're going to be really afraid of not having that income. And unless you actually experiment with what it would be like to live on $24,000 a year for a little bit, you're going to just be like terrified of that prospect. Yeah. And there's never a good time to quit. You're like, there's never going to be the right time where you're like, oh yeah, I should take a pay cut. That's like 95% of my, <laughs> like there's yeah. never going to be the right time. And I feel like so many people waste their entire life waiting for that right time. And then it's the look up and they're 50 and they don't have it. I never did it. Or they never, at that point, they don't even have the desire to do it at that point, but they might've had it, you know, growing up. And it's just like, we're waiting for that right moment. Putting it off. Uh, Yeah. And yeah, but kind of like by kind of experiencing what that sort of worst situation would be or situation where you're not making as much money, getting comfortable with that, you realize the risk is not quite what you were imagining in your head. And that's really the best time to do it is when you're feeling the safest because, you know, Seneca says it here, right? It's precisely in times of immunity from care that the soul should toughen itself beforehand for occasions of greater stress. And it is while fortune is kind that it should fortify itself against her violence. So if everything is going really great for you, that's the time to practice what it'll be like if it doesn't, right? It's the time to build up the defenses when you have the ability, not when you're scrambling to do it afterwards. Yeah, because I mean, it's not going to be easy to do it afterwards yeah. at all. It's like, well, you might have to do it out of necessity, but you won't have any defenses built up. Right. It's kind of like that that not so great quotation about planting a tree, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> the one you don't like. <laughs> the, one, the one I don't like. <laughs> you know, the, the, the best time to plant a tree is 10 years ago. The second best time is today, right? Yeah. It's like, okay, but yeah. I mean, you can think about it with this too, right? It's like, you know, you may be young and healthy and spry now, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't exercise and eat well and everything because you can guarantee that if you're 50 and you can't pick up heavy weights and you can't run long distance you're going to wish you had started sooner it doesn't mean you can't learn how to do it now there's a lot of people who get really fit in their 50s and 60s but it's a lot easier to approach that age already being strong and healthy and if you've done it your whole life you're you know it just pays dividends over time too. Exactly. Um, I love this idea of fortune that they talk about. And I like how it's capitalized. Yeah, well, it's, they personify it. Fortune's right. like a person. So I've been thinking lately that as, when we were re- looking over this book, fortune seems like what the philosophical idea of God could be like too, yeah. right? It's like 
kind of this entity that you don't quite understand. And especially the way he mentions it here, where it's like when fortune is kind to you, that it should fortify itself against her violence. So it's personified as a person, but it's really this force that humans can't control, but you just kind of have to endure or accept whatever it's going to dish out at you. And I love how the Stoics do that. And I don't, is that the same thing as Logos or is that slightly different? No, because Logos is like the logical okay. ethics side of things. Got it. Because I know he refers to that too, but in slightly different contexts. I think fortune and fate are really the similar things here because Stoicism does have such a strong undercurrent of fate and accepting and reacting to fate and not complaining about fate. We're going to get back to a lot of that later, but a big thing here is whatever you're getting from fortune, everyone's going to have periods of feast and famine where sometimes things are going to be going really well and sometimes they're not. You can't totally control when that happens, but when you are in the feast state, prepare for the right, famine exactly. right like, exactly because it's coming it's coming, it's coming winter is coming yeah, right? exactly. it's always coming That's yeah. the thing. i love uh this quote as well where he says you will understand that a man's peace of mind does not depend upon fortune for even when she's angry she grants enough for our needs and that's kind of the same exact idea like you put yourself in that bad situation and you're still going to be okay yeah right. you won't be in the feast state but that's natural right it's yeah. going to happen to everyone all right should we hop into the next letter here this is letter 26 on old age and death. You want to start off? Sure. It's only a short time since I was telling you I was in sight of old age. Now I'm afraid I may have left old age behind me altogether. Some other term would be more in keeping now with my years, or at least my present physical state, since old age connotates a period of decline, not debility. Put me in the list of the decrepit, the ones on the very brink. However, I congratulate myself, mind you, on the fact that my age has not, so far as I'm aware, brought any deterioration to my spirit, conscious as I am of the deterioration in my constitution. So basically, his body's failing him, but his mind is not, and he's proud of himself for that. Yeah, at this point in his life, he's... He's not crazy old, but he's in his 60s. Yeah, which I think at that time was very old. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, not maybe not very old, but it was definitely pretty old. Yeah. Yeah. I think Socrates lived into his 70s or 80s, which was pretty impressive, too. But yeah, so Seneca lived a long time. This is fairly shortly before he commits suicide that he's writing all this. So I think he's close to death, but not not quite there. But the general idea here is even though he's old and lacks some of the physical abilities, the mental abilities, like you can still have that youngness of mind and spirit. And it is a way of approaching, I feel like physical age, but also just physical situation where you can apply old here to a lot of things. Oh, right. Absolutely. Where it's not just about being old. It's like, okay, if you're poor, if you've had bad luck, if you're in a really bad situation, none of that matters. What matters is your mentality around it. And I think old age is a great metaphor for that, all that stuff, because ideally we're all going to get old if we make it there. And that's something we can't prevent. Right. And so that also would apply to anything that fate throws at you or fortune throws at you, which could be right being poor, something happening to your company, something happening to your body if you get injured. There's all sorts of bad things that can happen in life and do happen. And he gives this good line here that even the most timid man can deliver a bold speech, which I think is a great example of that, where it doesn't really matter what your situation is if you have the mentality and the will to move beyond it. And he also points out too here, going back to some of the elements of preparing for the downturns of fortune, that there's no fixed count of our years. You don't know where death awaits you, so be ready for it everywhere, which is a little morbid. But <laughs> yeah, but I think it's a common thread throughout Stoicism and in some other philosophies too. But 
Yeah, I think it's quite motivating, actually, when you think about it that way. It's like it could happen at any time. It is morbid, but it does kind of constantly remind you to enjoy what you are doing. Because I think I've certainly been guilty of this in my life, and many other people are too, where you kind of push things off while you're like, oh, I'll do that next year, or I'll do that in five years. I have my 10-year plan or whatever. But then you forget that like you might not make it those 10 years. Like This might be your last year. And you want to be doing something where, or, you know, you want your life to be where you, if it is your last year, you're happy. You're like, I'm happy with how this turned out. It's like, what's the Steve Jobs question? You know, if I was doing this every day for the rest of my life, would I be happy? Exactly. And if the answer is like, no, for too many days in a row, it's yeah. the time you need to change something. Right. I feel like that's a lot of what Seneca's saying here is that you have to recognize that you're not guaranteed that long life, right? If you're planning that, okay, I'm going to do this whatever it is, you know, job, lifestyle, something for 10 years, and then I can retire and be happy, whatever. Like you're not guaranteed that, right? Which is why like the idea of retiring at 65, it's great if you're almost 65 or you are 65 now. But like for people our age, we don't know what the world's going to look like at that time. Yeah. You know, we we have no idea. Like we've got got three and a half more years of Trump. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) It's a big gamble. And even like outside of any of the political stuff, we just have no idea, right? What can happen. So it's like, personally to you as well as to the world at large so it's just you gotta embrace the moment and And enjoy the moment and this doesn't mean like go completely you know yolo carpe diem it's just like recognize that you can't totally plan on like i'm gonna do this and then be happy later whatever right it's uh what's randy commissar's thing the deferred life plan yeah where okay like i'll get to do all that stuff later well there might not be a later there might not be a later right yeah or circumstances might not allow you to do that later even if you make it to that later, like, you know, you might say, oh, I want to go walk around South America or something. But like, you might make it to 65 to go do that, but you might be in a wheelchair. Yeah. You don't know. Like, you just don't know. There's so many things that can happen. (laughs) So yeah, no, I think uh, this is a powerful concept. And you see this all the time in stoicism in general. So, you know, Seneca is not the only one that talks about this. You see it in Marcus Aurelius. And yeah, and it's a common theme in other philosophies as well. I think Going back to the quote that said, even the most timid man can deliver a bold speech. I actually viewed that a different way when he said that. Oh, okay. I viewed it as him saying that like anyone can say that until they're in that situation. So anyone can say they're comfortable with the idea of death and old age and, you know, all these negative things that can happen. Yeah. But when you're in that situation, that's when you kind of really have to prove it. So anyone can talk, but to actually do it or feel that way is much harder. And it's probably worth uh, diverging here for a moment to explain Seneca's suicide. Because if there's anybody who walks the talk, assuming that this account is honest, right? You know, I think it's only from one, maybe two sources. So we don't 100% know that's accurate. I don't know anything in history, but this is the most we know. (laughs) (laughs) But as I understand it, he was condemned to suicide. So he slit his wrists. But because he was old... His blood, I guess, was thicker, and so it wasn't draining fast enough. Maybe he'd fasted. Probably had been fasting, yeah. He drink water. <laughs> and so he had to take poison. And then the poison wasn't killing him fast enough wow. either. So then he got in a hot bath to accelerate the loss of blood and to accelerate the poison hitting his bloodstream. And all the while, like he was the one doing this, right? So, oh, my God. There's a good example of somebody kind of walking the talk of actually, you know, committing suicide and dying honorably. It's pretty intense. And you can actually, there's a good statue of this if you're ever in Paris at the Louvre. I think it's called The Death of Seneca. He doesn't look very happy, but you can see him in the bath passing. I would imagine he's not happy about this. (laughs) Especially it's like his mentee who's gone insane and ordered his suicide. So yeah, yeah. exactly. Can't be a... Can't be a good feeling. No. But yes, so I think 
to your reading of it, even the most man can, most timid man can deliver a bold speech. You can't just say these things. Yeah. You got to walk the talk. Walk. Skin yeah. in the game. Skin in the game. Skin there in we the go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on to the next letter. So this is letter 28 on travel as a cure for discontent. And this plays on some of the themes we've talked about before, but it approaches the fixation on travel issue in a different, I think, interesting way. So I'll read this from the beginning. Do you think you were the only person to have had this experience? Are you really surprised, as if it were something unprecedented, that so long a tour and such diversity of scene have not enabled you to throw off this melancholy and this feeling of depression? A change of character, not a change of air, is what you need. Though you cross the boundless ocean, though, to use the words of our poet Virgil, lands and towns are left astern. Whatever your destination, you will be followed by your failings. Here's what Socrates said to someone who's making the same complaint. How can you wonder your travels do you no good when you carry yourself around with you? You are saddled with the very thing that drove you away. Love that. So good. Yeah. <laughs> I reread this when I was hanging out in Argentina and I read that line. I was like, Oof. Oh, yeah, yep. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's always, you know, whatever is, I think, driving people to travel a ton and to go out and just be very hungry for new experiences constantly and that novelty fetish, giving into it and feeding it doesn't fix it. It doesn't really help. And that's what he's saying here, right? You're going to these new places and making you happy because you're bringing you with you, right? The same thing that made you unhappy at home is going to make you unhappy elsewhere. I like the line too that says like a change of character, not a change of air is what is needed or yeah. what you need because that, yeah, I mean, you're going to take yourself with you. And a lot of people think of travel as a transformative experience, mm-hmm. which like it is in many ways. You meet a lot of different kinds of people exposed to new viewpoints, new foods, but at the same time, you can transform yourself right where you are, especially... Yeah, especially with the internet like Seneca was talking pre-internet pre like popularization of books even like books were very very expensive at that time no printing press nothing like that I mean you have so much at your disposal now where you could be in the middle of nowhere and you know maybe you should move or you should travel from there but even if you have no option to do that you're stuck there you have plenty of ways to be exposed to new ideas and to grow yourself and fix or change your character without going anywhere and the travel isn't going to cure it by itself as Seneca has been talking about here I feel like it's one of those things where you should only be going to travel if you don't feel like you need to go travel, right? And I think that a lot of people maybe fall into this trap where they say, oh, I need to get away, like I need to escape, take a break, you know, go somewhere and relax. And it's like, well, if you can't relax where you are, then this is always going to be a problem. Maybe you'll be able to enjoy the vacation, but when you come back, it'll be the same problem. Or worse, because now you got to play catch up. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, I mean, it's just such a useful heuristic where if you're saying in your head, oh, I need to take a trip, oh, I need to go somewhere. It's like, well, like ask yourself, what is causing that? Like, do you think that travel is going to make you happy? Is it going to bring you meaning? And I feel like everybody who indulges this and tries going on long-term travel to find meaning they end up realizing it doesn't do it, right? And kind of like we were talking about before. Which, to be fair, includes includes us. We've we've both both done done that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think I found for myself, at least, it was, it's really cool to get those experiences and meet all the kinds of people you meet when you travel. But if you're traveling to fix something in your character, it's not the way to do that. So, yeah, I think, and you, sounds like you had a similar experience. Yeah, well, uh, something that a friend mentioned that I thought was really helpful was they gave the example that they said that where you live, a city is like a relationship where you're not going to get a good relationship by constantly jumping between people, right? But it's tempting to think, oh, the next date, 
the next person I meet, like they'll be the one that'll make me happy and whatever. And it's like, well, no, you have to invest in it. You have to spend time with it and work on it. And there's always going to be some part of it that's not as good as, you know, some potential other thing that you could have, but it's a choice, right? It's like where you live is a choice. It's something that you're picking to do and that you're investing in and that you're making happen. And there will always, you know, be stuff that is better elsewhere. Like Austin has way better tacos than New York City. Yeah, (laughs) I can attest to that. New York City has a lot of great things too. (laughs) And I was going to say Austin used to be a lot cheaper than New York City. It's still cheaper, but not not, uh, as significantly as it used to be. (laughs) That's true. I mean, (laughs) I had a bigger apartment there for half the price. So it's uh, it's quite a bit cheaper. (laughs) That's a good point. (laughs) Although San Francisco is probably... San Francisco is even worse. Yeah, Yeah, I had a closet for the price. (laughs) (laughs) Closet's pretty good. (laughs) Yeah, I know, right? (laughs) But... Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like this lesson is even more important today with how mobile we are. Oh, yeah, definitely. With it's the ability so, to work wherever you want. And- yeah, it's so easy to live out of a suitcase, travel around constantly, work remotely. And I feel like because, at least in the US, everyone grows up with travel being this ooh, exclusive, you know, kind of special thing. Yeah. That when you have the ability to do it long term and constantly, you feel almost obligated to do it. Mm-hmm you know, whether for yourself or status signaling or something, but you you kind of have to realize like it should have a point beyond, I think it'll make me happy or I need a break. Right. Right. Like take a trip because you're really interested in an area. Right. Or that's a different thing. You want to like practice photography or, you know, you're hanging out with friends or yeah, you're particularly visiting somebody or something or yeah, I feel like a bit of a fraud talking about this because I've just (laughs) traveled for the last four or five weeks straight. Well, Uh, but at the same time, it kind of reinforced for me too how much I do need to stay in one place and how much travel I have been doing and kind of like I, I was talking to uh, one of our mutual friends Adil about this recently and it's like for the next few months put like a self-enforced travel ban on myself where oh, <laughs> I'm just staying well because I have family in DC and, and I'm moving to New York I have a lot of back and forth between those two cities but I'm not counting that as travel that's more like the moving process but yeah other than that I'm not planning on doing much travel in particular because I want to stay in one place and build a routine and dig deeper into some of the relationships that I do have in on the East Coast in the US. Yeah, get to spend time with people instead of constantly doing like a Skype catch up every two months or something. Yeah, it's not not the same. same. No, I I was actually thinking about this recently, too, because, you know, I just spent six weeks in Asia. And for me, that was a distinctly different trip because the whole point of it was I've never been to Asia and I want to see Asia. Exactly. And that's different. And I feel like that was a way healthier outlook on it. And it gave me a much better mentality instead of constantly comparing cities to cities and, you know, thinking about it that way. So I I feel like making that mental shift helps a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Hop in the next letter here. You want to read this Um, one? Yeah. So this one's called On the God Within Us. So it says, you are doing the finest possible thing and acting in your best interests if, as you say in your letter, you are persevering in your efforts to acquire sound understanding. This is something it is foolish to pray for when you can win it from your own self. There's no need to raise our hands to heaven. There's no need to implore the temple warden to allow us close to the ear of some graven image, as though this increased the chances of our being heard. God is near you, is with you, is inside you. So I thought this was like really, really powerful. And I think ties back to that same idea of kind of fortune and fate a little bit to me, at least. And it's really relevant to the idea of self-reliance. So it's kind of like, I personally am not a big fan of religious dogma, no matter what the religion is. And I think that so much of that is not really tied to 
actually attaining what you want. So people will go to like a temple or wherever. And I was actually in Asia as well. And we didn't overlap in any locations, but there's tons of temples. At least in Japan, there were a lot of people who were buying those little like leaves or, you know, where you're writing things at the Shinto temples. And it's kind of like, I view that as exactly what Seneca is talking about here, where it's like buying this thing, giving money to this temple, right, right? Is not going to increase your chances of like, what you want to happen, it's not going to increase the chances of that. It's more going to come from you and what you're doing. And sorry if I'm offending anybody with that, but it's genuinely what I think he's saying here. Well, yeah. And the, Sto- the Stokes definitely got in trouble for being probably atheist leaning, yeah. at least where they're saying... Well, maybe not atheist leaning. I view them more as like they do seem to see that there's some force that they might not understand. And whether yeah. you want to call that fate, fortune, God, whatever... But they seem to be very atheist leaning in the sense that like you can't control that force, that it's not going to be changed by you going to a church or a temple or doing this ceremony or that ceremony. It's going to come from you. Yeah, it's out there and you can only control your actions, right? right? Like in response to it. Yeah, but that would probably be interpreted as atheist leaning. (laughs) It could be, yeah, (laughs) Yeah. in in the wrong ears. Yeah. (laughs) But I mean, that's a really big point for him, right? Because he says that no one should feel pride in anything that is not his own. We praise a vine if it loads its branches with fruit and bends its very props to the ground with the weight it carries. But would anyone prefer the famous vine that had gold grapes and leaves hanging on it? Right. So he's saying, you know, you can't take claim or lay claim to something that's not your own. Going back to the fate idea, if fortune gives you something great, it's not really yours. Right. Because it's been given to you. It's been given to you. And if it can be taken away, then it's not yours. You only have your thoughts and your mind and your own will. Right. And that's a big part of the Stoic ethics. He says, man's ideal state is realized when he has fulfilled the purpose for which he was born. And what is it that reason demands of him? Something very easy, that he live in accordance with his own nature. And I feel like this one gets confusing sometimes because he doesn't totally define nature that well. But as I understand it, it's this focus on self-improvement and directing the will effectively in response to fate and reason, which is, I guess it's everything that he's talked about so far, where it's like, if you're living in accordance with nature, then you're not trying to fight nature, right? You're not pushing back against it. You're not complaining about it or wishing for it to change. You're recognizing the world for what it is. And then embracing that, embracing that and living in relation to it. Yeah. Yeah, no. And I think he also here is, I think, trying to say that the thing with accordance to his own nature, it's going back to what we were saying about like being happy with what you're doing or being, and this is a really hard idea to put into words, but you know, when you're working on something that is sort of in accordance with your nature, like there's just a feeling that comes along with that. Yeah. And it's just, I don't know how to put it in words, but it's like, you can tell when you are and you can tell when you're not. Yeah. I I don't know how else to say (laughs) it. And if you felt it, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. And Um, he's saying, you know, be honest with yourself about that. Right. Like, don't try to fight that any more than you have to. And And I think maybe that's what he means by fulfilling the purpose for which you were born. It's like whatever kind of is in accordance with your nature is kind of giving you that feeling and and you should pursue it without regards to what others are going to say about that or think about it. Yeah. It's your nature. You don't have to worry about how other people react to it. All right. Hopping into letter, what is that number? 54? 54. Yeah, 54. On asthma and death. Gotta work on our Roman numeral game. I know, yeah. (laughs) You want to read it? (laughs) Sure. Ill health, which had granted me quite a long spell of leave, has attacked me without warning again. What kind of ill health, you'll be asking? 
Well, you may, for there isn't a single kind I haven't experienced. There's one particular ailment, though, for which I've always been singled out, so to speak. I see no reason why I should call it by its Greek name. Difficulty in breathing being a perfectly good way of describing it. Its onslaught is very brief duration, like a squall. It is generally over within the hour. One could hardly, after all, expect anyone to keep on drawing his last breath for long, could one. I myself have for a long time tested death. When, you ask? Before I was born. Death is non-existence, and I know already what that means. What was before me will happen again after me. That's powerful. And for anyone who's kind of familiar with like Zen ideas or Buddhist ideas, this is very, very similar to that idea of you were a non-entity before you were born, and you're going to be a non-entity after you die. And this is sort of the brief period of time during which, you know, you exist and or arguably you exist, right? Not, depending <laughs> on what philosophy you're talking about. But yeah. But it's very, very interesting perspective on death here. Yeah. It's a really large amount of stoicism is focused on death, death. and being yeah. okay with death. And I feel Which makes it hard to explain it to people. It really does, because I think a lot of people get turned off by that side yeah. of it, where it can seem like a very morbid philosophy. Yeah. But Stoics seem very cheerful. Yeah, they are very cheerful. Like, well, yeah. I, I mean, I think that it comes back to if you really internalize these ideas that, oh, you know, being dead is just going to be like before I was born, which was fine, which was fine. Yeah. Right. <laughs> then it's like, oh, OK, you know, and it's OK, it's going to happen no matter what. I can't really do anything about that unless Kurzweil has his way. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, all right, it's going to happen. It's going to be like before I was born, the best thing I can do is live a great life in the meantime. And, you know, I, I'm not sure what the belief of the day was, but this would definitely fly in the face of some of the beliefs about heaven and hell and yeah. behaving well on this earth in order to make it to the next. And Seneca was living during the time of Christ. Right. So right. obviously these discussions were at least starting to happen then, and there would have been some strain of Judaism at the time. And it's very interesting. That idea of heaven is kind of almost very different than the idea of Stoicism, yeah. which is like you're not acting well for a reward in the future. You're acting well because that's because what you that's should be doing. Which, I don't know, it feels like a more sensible reason <laughs> to behave to me. Seems a little less like telling someone they should behave well only because of a reward, not for its own sake, almost yeah. seems like what you'd tell like a child. I was going to say, it's yeah. like child psychology, yeah. right? <laughs> or, or a like, dog. do this and I'll give you a cookie. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> anyway, before we get yeah. too far down that road here. But yeah, I mean, his whole argument here is he's making both himself and the reader more comfortable with death. A big part of Stoicism is just accepting that there are all these things you cannot change in the world and not being distraught over them, not despairing about them, not complaining about them. And death is a big one. And by adopting this mentality towards death, you know, Seneca, at least on the outside, has fortified himself against the fear of it. And he's encouraging the reader to do the same, recognize that it's just nothingness, right? It's just like before you were born. And yeah. then it becomes a little bit easier to recognize that it will happen yeah. to us someday. It will happen unless, yeah, as you said, some of the transcendence, right? <laughs> um, this might be a little bit of a tangent, but I think yeah. that this death idea is the most powerful one in stoicism because it kind of seems like everything almost flows from that a little bit. Um, but how, what has been the best way that you've found to like introduce people to stoicism? Cause I have not found this to be the way to do it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I definitely think this is one of the harder parts of it to yeah. explain. I feel like 
it's really a self-improvement philosophy, right? It's a practical philosophy, very ethics focused on self-improvement, proper direction of the will, not being bothered by things that shouldn't bother you, really checking your emotions and controlling them. And then one of those emotions that you have to check is fear of death. Because I think when you realize that it's completely unpragmatic, it does nothing for you, right? Like it's going to happen no matter what. And when you realize that it's not going to be anything, it's not going to be boring or scary. Right. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> like it'll just be nothing. Yeah. Right? And I mean, I, I still grapple with this a lot too. It's a really hard idea to internalize. And I feel yeah. like it's something where... It's a constant struggle. Like you're never like, I think Marcus Aurelius talks about this a lot, but you're like never there. Like there's no destination like you're kind of always going to have to work at this. Yeah. I yeah. find that you'll get it occasionally. Yes. And then brief moments of like, like yeah. oh yeah, okay, I understand now. And like the next hour you're like you'll freak out. Like, oh, God, I'm scared yeah. of this like <laughs> what if that person doesn't email me back? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> right? So, and I think that it does kind of put into perspective like you were just saying a lot of other little fears and worries where it's like even if death is going to be okay, then all this other little shit we worry about right. is going to be okay too. Right. right. Yeah. Cool. All right. Next one. Go ahead, Nat. Letter 78? Yeah. Yeah, 78. Okay. Nice job. So this is uh, letter 78 then on the healing power of the mind. And this isn't the very beginning, but I think it's a good section to introduce it with. A man is as wretched as he has convinced himself that he is. I hold that we should do away with complaint about past sufferings and with all language like this. And he's, you know, quoting an imaginary person here. None has ever been worse off than I. What sufferings? What evils have I endured? No one has thought that I shall recover. How often have my family bewailed me and the physicians given me over? Men who are placed on the rack are not torn asunder with such agony. So he's, you know, criticizing people who complain. And this is a big element. We've touched on it a couple of times here, but there's a very strong ethic and stoicism about complaining or even giving thought to things that are outside your control, right? There's no reason to worry about things. There's no reason to complain about things. There's no reason to feel remorse or any of these emotions because if it's already happened, it's over. And feeling the emotions again does not help anything. Much easier to say than do, but yeah, it's, a great <laughs> ideal. it's a great ideal to strive for. I, I mean, I do find, though, that labeling those emotions as useless oh, yeah, does help with getting over yep. them, right? Yep. They go away a lot faster once you've, yeah. <laughs> once you've labeled them that way. Because yeah. then you have this cognitive dissonance of like, you've labeled them as useless and dumb. And then you're still feeling them. And then your brain's like, wait, why am I still feeling them if they're useless and dumb? Yeah, it definitely helps with getting over it. (laughs) Uh, And then I also find this question is kind of helpful. Uh, It's definitely not like PC today, but understand when he was writing it. And so he's having another imaginary conversation here. So somebody says, I'm suffering severe pain, you may say. And then Seneca says, well, does it stop you suffering it if you endure it in a womanish fashion? Like a thought like that is so helpful to maintain, I find, where it's like if you're complaining about something or you hear somebody complaining, you know, don't say this to people because that usually pisses them off. You ask them like, well, does it make you feel better to complain about it? Yeah. But asking yourself (laughs) much better internal uh, conversation. (laughs) (laughs) It also probably doesn't help if you say they're enduring it in a womanish fashion. Yeah, don't say that. Men complain just as much as women. I want to say that. It's true. It's true. We're equal in that regard. But yeah, it's sort of like, you know, if you ask yourself, is this actually helping me get through it by complaining about it? The answer is usually no. It's usually making it worse. It's causing you to brood on it to, you know, give it way more mental bandwidth than you should. And it, you know, it, it doesn't help. And he goes on here to talk about worry and fear, right? The fear of future suffering and the recollection of past suffering. They're both useless since the latter no longer concerns me and the former concerns me not yet. It's like when something hurts, feel the hurt then. 
if something will hurt in the future, feel it then. But don't feel it after and don't feel it before. Right? It's like, uh, who's the quote? Is it Emerson? Right? I've had like a great number many worries in my life, most of which have not happened. Or, uh, man, I completely butchered that. But, no, but I, I, I see the idea. Though. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I really like this quote as well, uh, because I was actually thinking about something very similar the other day, which is, perchance someday the memory of the sorrow will even bring to light. Because mm. I was thinking about this uh, maybe a few weeks ago now, where I was thinking back to like the Alpha Lab struggling days when uh, yeah. I was working on my first company. And it was like, in hindsight, it's so much fun. Yeah. Like, I'm like, man, that was fun. We were like, doing all these things and like living on like no money and like <laughs> eating not much food. You know, just right. like, I don't know. It was like, it, but in hindsight, that's like, wow, that struggle was so much fun. And I like want to get back to that. And, but it's like at the, in the moment that was not fun. No. <laughs> so it's, I kind of think that's what he's referring to here that like in hindsight, like when you do make it past certain struggles, mm-hmm. there is a nostalgic sort of tint to yeah. it from the past. Not, or when you look at things in hindsight, so it's not going to feel as bad as it does right now. So you might as well start feeling good about it now and embracing the struggle. Yeah. Yeah. I've kind of been using that lately. Sometimes we're like, even in work situations or something, because like I'm leaving one of my jobs and going full time into my own company. And like sometimes things in corporate will be somewhat annoying or you'll struggle. And then I think that like in a year, I'm going to view those very nostalgically. Right. But I'm going to look at them and be like, man, those were the good old days good old in days. corporate. Like, <laughs> I, I, w- I w- missed those 20 person conference calls. So like, <laughs> yeah. So those are, um, I think it is like even a good philosophy when you're even just thinking about struggles you're going through at the moment. And a 20 person conference call is a very minor struggle in the grand scheme of things. But there are times where <laughs> it can be frustrating. <laughs> well, I, I think there's a second side to this too, which is definitely we look back with you know rose-colored glasses, yeah, and absolutely. we'll like I think some cognitive dissonance comes yeah. in where we make things seem like they're better than they were. But there's also the element of you can look back on it, you can know that it sucked, but you can still be glad you did it. Oh right? yeah, yeah, but that's more like conscious uh, understanding of what actually happened. Yeah, but but I think that's what he's saying yeah. here too, right? Perchance someday the memory of this sorrow will even bring delight. It's like that sucked when I was doing it, but I'm but very glad, glad I you did, did it. it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it feels like me every time I go running. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's like running is never fun during the running. And then afterwards you're like, wow, that feels really yeah, good. Yeah. Like I feel great now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah and I, there's one other quote from this that I, or maybe there are a few other quotes, but definitely I like this one where it says, just as an enemy is more dangerous to a retreating army. So every trouble that fortune brings attacks us all the harder if we yield and turn our backs. But the trouble is serious. What is it for this purpose that we are strong, that we may have light burdens to bear? I love that. I love that quote. Yeah, it's just, I mean, it, basically it's, I think he's saying here that if you're not sort of attacking your troubles or your struggles head on, they're going to be even worse. Yeah. If you're running away from them, it's going to be even worse. Yeah. So you might as well attack the problem. So I was a, a tennis player growing up and played at CMU and stuff. And in high school, there was a conditioning coach that I had. And I only worked with him for a few months, but there's one thing that I'll always remember that he said, and we'd always run these hills and he would always say, attack the hill. Mm-hmm. And like, I think about that whenever there's like something where it's kind of like very, even when you're facing like a work problem or any kind of problem in your personal life or relationships with somebody, it's like that thing that is sort of looming above you is like that big, scary monster, attack it. It's going to be way better if you attack it than if you just sort of like being dragged up it. It's way worse. Right, right. (laughs) You want to attack that problem. I love that. And this idea of, you know, you're becoming strong so that you can bear harder and harder challenges. It's really easy. And I mean, we use gym examples a lot, but you see this in the gym all the time, right? Where people go in and they just do the the weights that they can lift already, right? Fairly easily. They're not kind of pushing up their limit. And obviously that 
doesn't really make you any stronger. And if you're just focusing on the light burdens, right, it's not really going to improve your capacity. I think people do this for everything too. I mean, even in work situations, like you've done this so much where you throw yourself into doing something new that you don't know that you can do like a podcast. (laughs) Like you didn't have like a podcast internship or like (laughs) a podcast. Like, I don't know, you didn't do, you know, like you just dove into it and you kind of learned on the fly and yeah, there's that cartoon, which maybe you can put in the show notes of uh, someone assembling, like jumping off a cliff and assembling the plane on the way down. That's like so indicative of entrepreneurship. That's kind of a similar idea where you're doing something that you don't know if you can do. And in that process, you kind of become stronger as well. Definitely. And I think it's a really good point, right? You know, if you're never really being stressed to the edges of your abilities, then one, you don't know how strong you are. And two, you're not really getting any stronger, whatever field it is. We're getting dangerously close to Taleb territory. So let's move on to the next quote. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) You guys don't want us to go on that tangent. Yeah, you can go listen to that to our episode. (laughs) Okay, so we'll actually move on to the next letter then, which is letter 123 on the conflicts between pleasure and virtue. You want to start this one off? I've reached my house at Alba at last, late at night and worn out by the journey, which wasn't so much long as thoroughly uncomfortable. Even the Stoics complain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to find nothing ready for my arrival, apart from myself. So I'm in bed, recovering from my fatigue and making the best of this slowness on the part of the cook and the baker by carrying on a conversation with myself on this very theme of how nothing is burdensome if taken lightly and how nothing need arouse one's irritation so long as one doesn't make it bigger than it is by getting irritated. My baker is out of bread, but the overseer or the house steward or one of my tenants can supply me therewith. Bad bread, you say, but just wait for it. It will become good. Hunger will make even such bread delicate and of the finest flavor. And for that reason, I must not eat until hunger bids me. So I shall wait and shall not eat until I can either get good bread or else cease to be squeamish about it. Smart man. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, everything, everything's so much better when you want it. And it kind of goes back to a lot of the ideas that he's been talking about. I mean, obviously, because it's all stoic related, but it's the things of pleasure and these enjoyments, it's all relative. And if you know that you can be happy on less, then you will appreciate having more that much more. Absolutely. It's like any bread is going to taste good when you're hungry, right? Any water will taste good when you're thirsty. (laughs) And if you never give yourself that stress, then you lose that sense of reference to what is actually enjoyable and what isn't. And it's so relative. This is going to be a very silly, but maybe relatable example. (laughs) But uh, a couple, maybe it was like two years ago, I was in uh, Cancun at one of those like all-inclusive resorts. And um, you know how big of like a beer nerd I am. And obviously all-inclusive, they're not going to be giving you anything too good. So they were giving watered down what they were calling corona i don't think it was corona served out of like almost like a soda fountain uh setup it was basically water right so i was drinking that for a few days and i or maybe like a day and then i gave up on that and i was like i'm not gonna drink this this doesn't make any sense to drink so i was drinking other stuff the last day i found out they actually they were able to bring you beer in room service that would be in cans or bottles and uh the best beer they had was budweiser which anyone who knows me is like that is blasphemy for me to drink a budweiser because i'm not the biggest fan of anheuser-busch as a company (laughs) nor am i a big fan of like their beer but i ordered a six pack of budweiser for me and my brother and we were just gonna drink that it was one of the best beers i've ever had (laughs) it was so good it was like after drinking the water corona flavored water that was <laughs> whatever being they were served serving. there and then to drink like an actual budweiser i was like this is delicious but then you know you come to like new york and you have infinite varieties of beer and then you go drink a budweiser and you're like what the fuck is this oh, yeah. so relative taste i mean he's talking about taste here but this applies to anything 
it's so, so relative on what you've been experiencing lately. Yeah. Or even like, I mean, if you've gone camping and then gone to like your actual bed, it feels so soft. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, like any, any food tastes better camping too, oh, yeah. right? Cause you're out <laughs> yeah. in the woods and you've been working all day yeah. and right, you're not surrounded by all the comfort. Like, or just you, even a glass of water. Like after a long, like if you're doing like an outdoor workout or you're running sprints or something, like just have a nice cold glass of water. No, nobody wants a Coca-Cola after no. they've been, you know, dehydrated and exhausted. Yeah. Right. Just in any place that you can, like giving yourself some of these frames of reference is so helpful, right? Because then you just appreciate things so much more when you do have them. Yeah. And it goes back you to those exercises. You can create this for yourself too. It's kind of like the idea of fasting or the idea of living on a smaller budget of food for a while or fat. Like uh, I've been doing this thing this year. So I'm doing 60 veggie days during 2017 where I'm basically vegetarian on 60 days of the year and then also doing 30 fasting days with so 90 basically days of not. It's so basically like a quarter of the year of doing a different diet than I normally do. Okay. And partially the veggie thing is like, I just wanted to mix up my protein amounts a lot, a little more than I had been doing instead of doing protein this, cycling. Yeah. Instead yeah. of doing like the same every single day, going some up, some down. But then it's also just, just to like get myself to make, make myself almost more thankful for the meat that I'm eating. Cause it's like, I don't know, like traditionally it wasn't that easy to get meat right, right? So yeah it used to be a bit more work it wasn't like you just go to the grocery <laughs> store it's like nicely <laughs> packaged and yeah i had uh, this thought last year actually where i was thinking i was like I, I can't remember the last time i went a whole day without eating like a meat product and it was probably had been multiple years where every single day and it's just like i don't know that's definitely not uh you just don't even appreciate it as much like no. you don't think about it, it's just like normal I think you and I have probably talked about this where like I want to try hunting just yeah. partially the same exact reason I want to be like more thankful for actually having no, I mean, the meat. I definitely think that anybody who eats meat regularly, like especially men, should at, at some point go kill an animal. Yeah, like, just see what that's like. You're kind of obligated to, yeah. right? Because we remove ourselves from the process so exactly. much. Yeah, it's like you just think about it as the same as buying like cereal or something. And right. It's not the right. same. <laughs> no, it's an actual, or it was an animal yeah. anyway. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, this is sort of what he's getting at here too is avoiding the lifestyle inflation yeah. which is because he has this great quotation here how many things are superfluous we fail to realize until they begin to be wanting we merely used them not because we needed them but because we had them and how much do we acquire simply because our neighbors have acquired such things or because most men possess them many of our troubles may be explained from the fact that we live according to a pattern and instead of arranging our lives according to reason, are led astray by convention. This is great. Brilliant. <laughs> it's, like, it's so relevant. You see this all the time now. It's still a huge issue. I mean, I think it's gotten worse with social media, oh, yeah. where it's just this constant comparison game. And you see this with kids graduating college, where it's like, oh, I have to make more money than you know my peers. I have to have like a cooler apartment, be in a better part of the city, you know, all this stuff. And it's so silly people who just have all this stuff in their house and they can't get rid of it, right? I mean, maybe some of your relatives or people that you know are like this, but especially with people who get past, you know, 30, 40, 50, oh, yeah. it's like they have a whole room with their house dedicated to stuff. To, Storing stuff. Yeah, they don't, <laughs> they don't use anymore. It's, it's absurd. Right? Yeah. And I'm sure that, you know, this plays out in so many ways. Like sometimes when I'm home visiting my family, I'll suggest taking an Uber into DC because it's like way easier than bringing a car into right. parking. Right. And like my dad will offer to drive me in instead. 
And on the one hand, it's a really nice gesture, right? right? It's like super, super nice of him. But on the other hand, it's like, I wonder how much of those kinds of impulses come from like, well, we have a car, so we shouldn't use Uber, right? Like, I think there's definitely stuff like that everywhere. I mean, even just moving into this new apartment, we've been trying to buy as few things as possible initially. Like see what you'll actually need or what you feel missing. What we feel missing and then buy it as opposed to like what I think a lot of people do. We just fill it up with a bunch of stuff and then you don't use a third of it. Yeah. And I think like his part here uh, at the very end of that quote, which is instead of arranging our lives according to reason are led astray by convention. I actually think of like what my brother is doing in LA, which most people in LA obviously own cars. He did some of the math around like what insurance costs, what like the car payment would be, what gas would be, plus like any sort of like issues that come up with the cars, like repairs and stuff. And uh, compared that to just taking Ubers or Lyfts everywhere. And especially when you think about Lyft line and Uber pool and like how cheap those are. He did the math and it was like an order of magnitude different in terms of how much it would cost. He also doesn't live very far from work. So I think he was really for a while feeling that like, man, everybody else I know in LA has a car and I'm like the only one that doesn't. But that would have been the wrong reason to buy a car. Yeah. If he really wanted a car, that would be maybe different or he really felt the need for a car be different. But it's like if he was buying it because everybody else had the car, that would have been the wrong wrong thing to do. Yeah. But everyone does that. Everyone does that. We I mean, all do especially it. luxury goods. Oh, yeah. Luxury goods is a huge yeah. one. Where it's like I have to have, you know, a nice car, yeah. like a nice bag, a nice yeah. watch, you yeah. know, whatever. Whatever the signaling is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because you want to like fit in. Yeah. Right. And I think travel is actually one of these things too, especially today. So I was in Ireland recently at this place called the Cliffs of Moher. It's like the most touristy part of non-Dublin that you can possibly go to. My brother was there with me as well. And we were just like looking around and everybody was there just taking a picture and they were viewing the whole place through their phone and not through their eyes. And it's like, they're basically here to take this picture and signal to everybody back home or in their social circle that like, hey, I'm here. And they probably are doing that because they saw somebody else there. And uh, yeah, it just becomes this like sort of circle of people going to places simply for the Instagram. (laughs) Well, dude, in Kyoto, in Japan, did you go to the Fushimiyanari shrine? Yep. So there's- One with all the gates. One with all the gates, yeah. Yeah. And so I'll include a link to this in the show notes, but there's that first small part of it where there's just like a little path. Yes, and then when you go up to the top, nobody's going up to the top. Nobody is there. (laughs) It's empty. I love that. We did the hike too. Yeah, Yeah, everybody just goes through the little like 20 minute section. They they take a bunch of photos, right? There's a million people there. it's so crowded. But you literally, walk 10 minutes up the hill and there's nobody <laughs> and then it's like a beautiful one hour hike it's like yeah. a really nice hike up to the top and great views of kyoto but there's nobody there because Absolutely. it's not like you you've already got the photo the right it's just more of the gates yeah yeah <laughs> why else do you go there yeah i think yeah. that was a perfect example but i think this was the last letter that we were gonna discuss so I'll, maybe we'll just read this last quotation here because i think it's a good one to end on so seneca says let us fight in the opposite fashion. Let us retreat from the objects that allure and rouse ourselves to meet the objects that attack. That's beautiful. As, it's just a great it's sentiment. Like a Jocko, it's almost like a Jocko quote. Right? It is kind of, yeah. <laughs> yeah like, Jocko's got a lot of like stoic roots, yeah. I think. I, he hasn't done a stoic book yet, I don't think, right? Yeah. But, but maybe he just like learned it without reading stoicism too. That's possible. But no, I think this is super relevant. It's kind of like the idea of doing the things that scare you a little bit and maybe being suspicious of the things that feel easy. Yeah, (laughs) I think that there's just so much useful advice and lessons in here. And the most remarkable thing about it is how timely it still is. 
that this could have been written yesterday. And as long as you took out a few of the like little anachronisms, it's all the same problems. You know, we see these things coming up all the time. People trying to escape through travel and diversion, buying things to fit in and impress people, trying to be happy, fearing death. They're all constant human problems. But this book is just such an amazing tool for helping you think about them differently and in a more pragmatic, useful way that's been such a big influence on so many people. And that's why it's lasted 2000 years. Oh, absolutely. And last tangent on this, I feel like this is must have been retranslated recently because it seems like, yeah, like there's so many older books that are not translated recently. And then I don't know about you, I have a lot of trouble reading them just simply because the translations from the 1800s or something. And then it's not how we talk today. When I'm reading Seneca's letters, at least the maybe the version that I have on Kindle or the physical copy, it just seems like it was written today, which is partially why maybe it seems so relevant as well. I think there's two things at work. I think one, it's been translated recently. And I think it was probably originally written in Latin, which would have a very limited vocabulary. So it's going to be like super simple language when they translate it. Okay. So it makes it easier to understand. Definitely. I noticed the same thing with Marcus Aurelius too. It's like very simple to understand, at least in the translation that I have. Yeah. It's just like very simple language and you don't have Especially if you read in English. Yeah. Like English is such a stupidly big language that when things are translated into it, they're so easy to read because there's so many fewer words. Yeah. <laughs> it's, just, it's much simpler language. Um, it's not like a criticism of other languages. English yeah. is just absurd in that way where right. we have, you know, four ways of saying everything. And like seven different spellings. And yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> so I feel like that's probably part of it too. Okay, yeah. But I think there have been fairly recent translations okay. because it's so popular right, right now. Exactly. Yeah. No, I mean, if you haven't read this book, this is get this. I'm sure even some of the letters are available online and stuff. And oh, you can, I mean, you can get the book for free online. Yeah, right? it's so it's out of copyright. So yeah. so go ahead and do that. Go ahead and do that. Yeah, you can find all of our notes usual place slash podcast And Neil, thank you for joining again. Yeah, this is awesome. This is really fun. We'll be back. Thanks, guys. All right. We hope that everybody listening enjoyed that episode of Made You Think. Hope it made you think about something. (laughs) (laughs) Couldn't resist. Couldn't resist. No, it had to be said. But as always, episode show notes and more are available at madeyouthinkpodcast.com. Definitely go check it out. Get the links to everything that we mentioned in the show. You can always hit us up on Twitter. I'm at Nat Eliason. And I'm at the Rail Neil S. So let us know what you thought of this episode and share it with a friend who you think might enjoy it. This podcast can only survive and grow with your help. And we would love it if you would let somebody else who you think might enjoy listening to these topics know about the show. Thanks, guys. See you next time.